Um, for instance, let me ask you, a, a, like we'll do a memory type question, all right? What did Jesus tell us about heaven? How did he describe it? What did Jesus say about heaven? What was that? In my father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. Mm-hmm. And where I go, I will come and take you with me where I am. Mm-hmm. Does he say anything else? Absolutely true. But we have other pictures of heaven, don't we? Where do they come from? <laughs> no. The, the John, John the Apostle gave us some pretty clear pictures in the last book as to what to look for. But he was a very colorful writer. And he was a very creative fellow when it came to... We were telling them, I think it was the men's uh, prayer breakfast or something, uh, this huge city that is heaven described in Revelation, um, 1,200, 1,500 miles in length in all directions and high. You realize 1,500 feet high puts it way up beyond the Hubble telescope and the International Space Station and things. I mean, that's a pretty good size structure. And each of the sides has three gates, which would then total 12. And each one of the gates is cut out of a single pearl. So when you stop and think about the oyster that created the pearl for one of those gates that would fit in a wall 1,500 feet high, um, it really does go beyond what we can conceive. We're going to start in the 19th verse. And then we'll look and see how that compares to the sermon this morning on prayer, being a relationship. We need to celebrate. We need to bathe ourselves in the relationship with our Father in Heaven, with our Lord and Savior, the brother that we have when we're adopted into God's family uh, through the grace of Jesus Christ. We need to celebrate and remember the, the strength of that relationship that we have. And so um, that, that's part of what we're building on here. Okay? And this is what Jesus is teaching. Now, let me set the stage for this, if I may. Jesus knows the temple very, very well. Ruth told me last week, if I had my hands tied, I'd be deaf and dumb. All right? <laughs> She's right, because I couldn't draw my pictures, all right? But if you look at a satellite picture down on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem, even today, you'll see that there is a wall that faces out over the old city of Jerusalem and down through the Kidron Valley that goes way out beyond. The, 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 the city of Jerusalem sets on Mount Zion, and it's between two other mountains, um, the Mount of Olives is on the uh, east side, and um, anyway, uh, it was where David's palace and the high priest's house and everything were on the west side. 
And so the, the hill of the temple, Mount Zion, is right in the middle of these two hills with the two valleys, one on each side. And then the valley comes together at the bottom of Jerusalem and goes down through a very deep gorge down through there. Okay? So if you think about it, the temple sits up here on top of Mount Zion. All the wealthy people's homes are over here on this side, um, high up on the mountain side. And as you get lower and lower incomes, their homes are built on lower and lower levels of the hillside as they get down farther. We don't do that today because we have things like underground sewer systems and that kind of stuff that they didn't have in those days. So it was sort of natural that anything that happened up here, if somebody finished washing the dishes and threw the water out into the street, where's it going to go? It's going to head toward the low-rent district. Okay, <laughs> And that's not the only thing that flowed down through the city streets and all the way out. And then when it got into the valley, down below the, the Temple Mount and below the, the wealthy people's homes up here, it went on down through and out through a hole in the wall that was called the Dung Gate. All right? So that's where everybody took the trash that they were getting rid of and they would walk down the hillside and down through the valley and out through the dung gate and they would take their basket or their container, whatever they were using, all the scraps and all the junk and the stuff that's going to smell bad after a while, and they threw it over the side of the valley down into a place called Gehenna. All right? It was the city dump of Jerusalem. And so there was a whole lot of stuff going on down there in Gehenna that you just hoped the wind didn't come from the south side of the city because it blew it sort of back in over the city and you hoped you were always getting a nice northerly breeze and taking it on away down toward Bethlehem. All right? <laughs> Bethlehem was downwind. <laughs> so that's the picture. And right up here on top of Mount Zion is the temple and the southern facing wall is what Jesus is teaching from. So he's drawing a picture of Jerusalem as he stands on the wall up here in Jerusalem at the temple. Okay? So let's start with that. We'll read what it says here. Sixth, the 19th verse. There, chapter 16, verse 19. Okay? There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen. He lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked the sores. The time came when the beggar died, and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. In hell, which is read is in Gehenna, all right, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called him, Father Abraham, have pity on me, and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, because I'm in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, 
while Lazarus received bad things. And now he is comforted here, and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed, so that those who want to get from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. And he answered, Then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my father's house, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them, so that they will not also come to this place of torment. Abraham replied, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. He said to him, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced if someone raises from the dead. Okay. The picture here, just so that you get the idea, is of one of these wealthy men way up on the side of the hill, way up high, has this wonderful compound, this wonderful home, and Lazarus is brought and laid at his doorstep. There was no Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid. There was no other form of emergency help if someone fell in really hard times or really got sick. Of course, there were no hospitals either, so you didn't have big x-ray bills either. Uh, no CAT scans. So, but there was no medical treatment. There was, no, but at least those who had resources were supposed to care for the basic needs of the people who did not have enough, all right, or who were really in difficult times. Um, we have difficulty remembering today that in the time of Jesus and all through much of the times, I mean, all the way up into current times, there is a rule that is inviolate in the Middle Eastern countries. It is called the rule of hospitality. And if somebody comes to you, if somebody is placed somewhere in your vicinity and you do not welcome them in, if you do not provide for them, if you don't even give them protection, you are in violation of the laws of hospitality. And it is a very serious crime. There are many people uh, who look at society today and say, well, I wouldn't take anybody in my house. Didn't know. But in that part of the world, it was a requirement. And part of the requirement was, if you didn't, i got to say it carefully, if you didn't at least give them a chance to come in and be a part of your settlement, your community, your camp, it was very likely they would not be able to fend for themselves, defend themselves, feed themselves, and possibly find enough water for themselves, and they could easily die. So it was a life and death rule that you had to provide for the basic needs of those who are laid into your care. And that's one of the rules of Middle Eastern society, and it is even till today. All right? Uh, it's not quite as strong today. The punishment isn't as severe today because there's a lot of anger and tension and all kinds of stuff, and so it makes it a little more difficult. But all through the years, all through the generations, it's been that way in the Mideast. So the poor man is laid at the rich man's door, and he longs for food that the dogs are licking up off of the floor under the 
dinner table. All right? And then it comes time for the poor man, the sick man, Lazarus, to die. To get a picture of what that means. Every morning, there were people within the society who would take wagons or carts through the city streets, rolling around, looking for people who had been on the street and who died for one reason or another through the night. And they would very carefully take those bodies of people that they found. Um, these are the lowest class people in the entire society. They were unclean. They were untouchable. No one would associate with them. They were actually outcast from society for one reason or another. And they would be given the job of going in and touching these very unclean bodies and putting them up on a cart and rolling them down the hill through the dung gate. And then they would come to the edge of Gehenna. They would take the bodies and throw them over the edge of the dump and down in where everything else was being consumed uh, because of the decomposition that was going on. There was always sort of a fire burning down underneath all of the stuff they were throwing. You know, like if you took, took a lettuce leaf or something and you weren't, it wasn't good, you are just going to throw it away. Well, if you threw it over the side, there'd be enough heat coming up through underneath to where that green leaf would slowly turn yellow and it would then turn brown and it would curl up and then you'd see little red glowing marks around the edge of it as it started to be consumed and it would just slowly shrivel up and then pretty soon all you would look at is just sort of a brown shape of what looked like a leaf. Well, that was happening to the body of those who were thrown in there too. There was no formal burial because there was no family to claim the body. There was no one to grieve because they had no one. They were absolutely, totally isolated people. And so, without any ceremony, they'd just be rolled off in there, and within a day or two or a week, you'd, you'd basically just have an unrecognizable stuff all in with the rest of the trash. Okay? Now, that's one way of dealing with what remains after a life has passed. It came time for the rich man to die. His ceremony was amazing. I mean, they have people I'm not going to do for you, Greg, like they do in the Middle East, where they make sounds. It would blow your speakers. I mean, it's, it's literally. It's a squeal that they trill their tongue. But in a high-pitched falsetto squall, to try and express the grief that they, that they feel and the grief of sorrow at saying goodbye to this very wealthy, very influential, very powerful man. And so when it came time for the morning, they would choose the very best sopranos in the entire community <laughs> who were good at this, and they would line up a whole row of them that would lead the procession with this ear-piercing, squealing, trilling sound of grief. And they would proceed down through. It was worse than the fire trucks going by or the ambulance running. It was a, a piercing sound. And the whole city was alive with the awareness that somebody important had died. They would go down through the city, down out of the city, not through the dung gate, but through 
the Kidron Valley and over onto the giant cemetery on the Mount of Olives. Facing the Temple Mount is the Mount of Olives. Um, we think of it as the Garden of Gethsemane today. That's where Jesus went and prayed. It's where he hung out with his disciples, where he did much of his teaching during the days they were in Jerusalem. But it is Israel's largest, most densely packed cemetery any place. The whole mountainside is basically one stone slab. It's Not much grows up on the top section of it all the way along the Mount of Olives. It's a big limestone block, if you want to know the truth about it. Very steep, very, very rugged, and they build these boxes for tombs. You can't dig down into the ground. It's not like we have here where you, you're going to go down to the cemetery, you go down into the soil, and you put the, the, uh, the casket, but the, put it in the tomb with the, the casket uh, vault. Yeah, I couldn't get vault to come out of my head. It was stuck in my head. And then you put the casket in there, and then you, you fill back over the top. It's, it's not that kind of uh, cemetery. They build a stone box with a lid that can be taken off. And every family has a stone box for their family. You don't have individual tombs for every person. They just have a stone box for each family. And what they do when they come to the time when they're going to bury they take the lid off of your family box because it's very warm, because there's um, no preservatives. They bury within the first 24 hours of the death, uh, and there's very little that they do to, to think about preserving the body. What happens is the bodies decay to where there's just basically a cluster of bones left behind. So they very gently, very lovingly, take the bones and push them off to one side and then off to the other as they take turns and leaving the center section open for the new body they're going to lay inside the box. So the phrase that they're using is he was buried with his fathers. What does that mean? The bones of the previous generations have been pushed off to the side gently and he has been placed right in the family crypt. Then they put the stone back on top, and within just a very short time, the, the, the body decays in that tomb. All right? And everybody that comes to visit takes a little stone from someplace and puts it on the lid to be a remembrance that they came and visited the tombs of all of their whole family. All right? So now we have, Jesus has drawn us a picture of two funerals. Okay? One goes over in Gehenna. One goes over on the Mount of Olives on the mountain opposite. But we just read something kind of amazing. What happened when they opened their eyes on the other side? They're flipped. I wasn't buried in Gehenna. <laughs> the rich man will, whoa, wait a minute. This is an uncomfortable place to wake up. I'm being slowly consumed. I'm being dehydrated. I'm being shriveled up. I'm, being, I'm losing my identity. I'm going to be forgotten, and I'm going to be alone. I am on the verge 
of disappearing from existence. Where's Lazarus? On Abraham's, I'm going to say bosom, I'm going to say with his head laying on Abraham's shoulder. All right? For a different picture. All right? Now, you have to understand, Abraham isn't buried on the Mount of Olives. He's buried 100 miles south down in Hebron. But you have to get the picture. This is, this is family. He is buried with his family. All right? He's surrounded by the people who love him. He is surrounded by the people who gave him life. He's surrounded by those who appreciated him and respected him. He's the one who is going to be remembered. He is not lost. His identity is not shriveling up like his body is in Gehenna and going to just completely be evaporated and disappear. He is with family. Now, you can go through the story and we'll read the, re- you can read the rest of it and you can say, okay, uh, there's this dialogue going back and forth. Please don't you know, send Lazarus and, and please send him to the, my brothers and all these kinds of things. But ultimately, I wanted to point to one very important thing. When Jesus said, I'm going to come and take you where I am, he told us the very most important thing about heaven, and he reinforces it in this story. Lazarus died with nobody. He died completely alone. Heaven is being with all of those people, including the Lord Jesus Christ, who love you. The relationship is the key even to understanding what heaven looks like. Do you follow? We talked about prayer being a relationship, prayer being an, an indication of our relationship with Jesus. Our prayer time either has the warmth of friendship, the warmth of compassion, the warmth of love and acceptance. Our prayer time has the warmth of a powerful connection to our Lord and Savior and our Father in Heaven. Or it's cold and distant, or two extremes. We can talk about God, we can talk about what it means, but if we don't know Him, if there's no personal knowledge, our prayers are cold and unresponsive. There's very little power in them. And it walks all the way through our life and even into the passage we take into eternity. Because when Jesus said, I've prepared a place for you, he was not talking about just, okay, let's see, uh, 9,365,000 came in, we're going to have to find a place for him here, let's look for an apartment. It's still open. No, it is a personal place in the heart of God, specifically for you. You don't need to know about the streets, literally. You don't need to know about the pearly gates, literally. And there's no St. Peter standing there asking silly questions, like we like to joke about, which is a lot of fun, but that has, that's not Scripture. When Jesus told us everything we need to know, including in this story that was 
a warning to those who had plenty in this life to be on guard that they had better remember God sees what they're doing and what they're not doing. Ultimately, what the story is telling about is this man who died completely alone, now waking up in the arms of not only Abraham. Abraham was just a spokesman. His whole family was there. He was surrounded. He was covered. He was completely encased in his most precious relationships. And, and I think we need to remember, uh, when we pray, we're going to be saying, thank you, Lord, I really love you. When Jesus was with Peter in that last exchange on the Gospel of John, Peter, do you love me? He was asking, Peter, I love you. I love you. How are you going to respond? That's the key. I'm walking with you. I came back for you. I came back to show you how much I love you. I have nothing else to prove. But Peter, do you love me? It's a critical, important question, not only for our prayer life, but for our assurance, our understanding, our certainty of what our life here is going to be as well as our life later on. Peter responds, yes, you know I love you. Okay, i got work for you to do. All right. Peter, do you really, really love me? And I think what he's trying to get us to do is to say, we have a lot of things we think about. We have a lot of things that we feel. Most of us have very busy lives. We can fill up a day just almost instantaneously. And if you don't know how to fill up a day, just ask Judy. She's got a list, and she'll help you know, keep you organized to get something done. All right? She is a list maker. I am a list checker-offer. I like to get the list. But we can fill up our days, but we have to be careful we don't get so busy or distracted we forget the question that Jesus asks each one of us. And he keeps coming back to it. Remember, I love you. Remember, I've taken care of you. I'm going to look after you. But if you really want my power, <coughs> if you really want to feel my spirit moving within you, the question comes to, Bob, do you love me? in response to what I've done for you, okay? And I just want to share that with you and kind of make that the conclusion of both sermons bundled together and say, it's not an easy question. It's, it's not something that comes automatically. It takes some thought. It takes some, it takes some inner soul searching to say, I want to love you. I want 
it's sort of hard to love you because there are some things that get in the way and I have to get rid of those to really love you. And that makes the choice hard. And yet we have to keep coming to that day by day. Do you really love me? And we're going to pray and we're going to ask God to make it easier for us, to take away some of the barricades, to, to make it easier for us to, uh, to show our love for him. Would you join me in a word of prayer? Dear Jesus, this is, this is some of the most important stuff we can talk about. It really is critically important to living a life of victory. We don't often talk about victory in Jesus as much as we might have a generation ago. We, we face a lot of challenges. Our world seems a lot different now. It, it, we seem more polarized. We seem more angry with people on either side and we seem to be pulling apart and the, the dialogue we hear on television and radio and newspapers almost seems to uh, well if you don't take a stand you're just a weakling if you don't take a side on one side or the other then you're just you're just not a strong person you have no convictions uh, if you don't stand up and holler about something or uh, uh, something that we're passionate about then you're just sort of a a mealy mouth, weakling. That isn't true because it takes a strong person to face the question Jesus asks and say, do you really understand how deeply I love you and then realize what I'm asking you to do to demonstrate your love for me. There was a job that you reminded Peter that had to be done every single time of the three times Peter said, you know I love you. Okay, then show me. D do the job I have put into your hands. Take care of the people that I took care of the way I took care of them. Show them the love that I gave them. And then you will have shown me that you really do love me. And so we say, Father, we're going to face that challenge every day. We're going we're to bow our heads, we're going to remember how much you love us, and then we're going to Sort through, how can we demonstrate a willingness to love and live as you would want us to so that we can glorify your name and show people what it really means to live in a kingdom that's here on earth in the same way that it's already existing in heaven. And we can praise your name and glorify your holy, matchless name. Amen.